This is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Truscott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak. And this is episode 181 with Stacey Aldridge. To skip over this intro where I speak to you from the woods and you hear something other than sirens and ambulances and police and helicopters and rioters and you hear, wow, nature. If you want to skip all that because it's not your thing, just go to somewhere around the nine and a half minute mark, somewhere around there, you'll find it to get right into my conversation with my guest. I'm just going to pause. I want to see if you can hear what I hear. Think outside of the normal thank you heartbreak box. I'm not boxed in the city, so try to listen for something other than sirens. All right, I think the birds were a little quiet there. That was unfortunate. I guess they heard me trying to make uh, something happen, and they shut the fuck up. Oh my god, if you could see what's going on in nature here, I'm just having... Bugs literally crawling all over me. I did this before. I did this, I think it was like two years ago when I was in North Carolina. I brought my mic up. The podcast had just started. I was going through my breakup actually, and I remember reflecting over it. And wow, it was a solo podcast back then. Yeah, it was just my reflections on heartbreak. And of course, then moving through my breakup, oh, he was not happy with those episodes. He was not. I remember flying back early from North Carolina to go to New York because I was going to be in this modeling shoot. Wow, big one. I had to get there fast before they changed their mind. So that happened. And I remember getting there and feeling like I have turned a corner, that I could feel that something had shifted. And I believe that there was a shift. There was a change in my heart. There was an opening, whatever you want to call it. But, and I hate to say but because that negates everything I just said. But, you know, I still had more time. I still had more time. And I'm not embarrassed. I don't feel like a bad coach, a bad host, a bad friend, a bad ex. I don't know, whatever, for saying that. That healing, and not even just healing, like... I really think like breaking upward, so really elevating yourself to a new level in your life, a new perspective, a place where you just aren't functioning as you used to. You're not thinking as you used to. You're not choosing as you used to. That takes time. I used to not take the time and it would just be the same pattern. And, you know, I'd go into the relationship and be kind of like the last one. But this time I was just going to do it better and I was going to do it right. And then to be furious because that wouldn't happen. I would just devolve. Is that the word? Dissolve, devolve, whatever. I would just become worse than I was, I think. And so that's what not taking the time did. And two years ago, I really committed. I just knew, I knew that I was coming out of a very special love. You know, children were involved. So I really saw the point in my mind for me, the point of love at this point in my life, really. The point, the point at this point in my life. And because of that, I knew it was going to be a while before I would choose someone again because I wanted to bet on myself. I hadn't done that before. I hadn't navigated the world really on my own, even though I was on my own in a lot of my relationships. But in my own mind, I hadn't been on my own. It had always been with and for another. And I wanted to roll the dice and see how I could lead my life with no other cheerleader but me. And I wanted to build off of the last love, not just the last person, not just how I was, but everything. And here we are two years later. I really feel that I've earned something in this time. And maybe that sounds weird to say, you know, you don't have to earn love. Everyone deserves love. I hate that. (laughs) But 
Um, yeah, I think that it's important to feel like for ourselves that we have earned our way into something more significant, something more sound, something more stable, something more based in self-awareness. Speaking of awareness and myself, when I got to North Carolina, I was not happy. I did not want to leave New York and people are just like, Chelsea, why are you this way? You cry over the thought of losing your parents and then you have an opportunity and you're bitching about going. I don't get it. And then like, I don't get it. Why are you so weird about leaving New York? New York is not going anywhere. And yet in my mind, I think it's going somewhere. It's always this feeling like if I leave what was just happening, I'll come back and it's gone. And that's really a lack of trust. I've had it in many areas of my life. I had it for a long time in the sense of my level of happiness, my level of joy, really not believing, trusting that it was here to stay and that even if it didn't stayed, if it didn't stayed, if it didn't stay, that it would ultimately return to me. And I think that while happiness and joy is very different than a city, you know, cities contain something and it will always be there. And I can always get the momentum back that I have. I think that you just have to trust in that. And even if you lose the momentum, the challenge, which can be exciting. I mean, the coronavirus has been a challenge. Can I be this good on my own? If we don't challenge these things, how do we even believe that we have them? We have to test the faith that we have in ourselves and other things and circumstances. So anyways, I'm going and drifting. I guess it's just the woods. I'm drifting. But I woke up, you know, in North Carolina and I was just not a great person. I was like really just living out my whole hypothesis that I'm a better person. I'm the best self in New York City. I was really living that out just by being like, oh, I don't know. What is the word? I don't know. Just the bitch face really like bothered. Didn't want to be here. This wasn't for me. This is not what I'm about. I'm not about this life. And I turned a page though. I don't know how many days I've been here now. A few, three, four. And I've gotten into it. And I think it's as simple as checking yourself and just saying, I don't want to be this person. You know, I think that we can complicate it. Oh God, what are the new habits that we're going to have to do? I need to wake up and have a meditation and get my mind right. And, you know, some of us do. We're in that place where it takes a lot more to pull ourselves together. But if you have some holds over your emotions and some clarity of mind, it can be as simple as Again, checking in with yourself and just saying, do I want to be this person? Do I want to like sit in my body this way and act this way? Do I want others to look at me and be like, oh, she's being this way? Do I want to look back on this trip and think, which I would, I could have done it differently. I could have engaged more. I could have just given into the experience. And for me, it's no, I don't want people to look at me as that person. I don't want to feel like this person. I don't want to look back on this trip and think, if only, if then, next time, so in those moments, it's quick as that. It's that revelation saying, all right, well, then I'm going to be different. I'm going to lean into this, embrace it. And from there, it just feels easy now. It feels like, okay, I've got this. I've got a smile on my face. And ah, just what a nice feeling to know that not only in terms of like the focus on, you know, is my happiness going to be stripped of me as I used to really focus, but knowing that, okay, that's not the case. And also I can lean into things and embrace them and I can be adaptable. Imagine for yourself just knowing that the moments that you go through, whether it's heartbreak or disappointment or setback, that you could trust in yourself then you could challenge yourself to see even that you could trust in yourself, that you could adapt. I mean, that's the biggest thing. We don't know, as you know, because of this virus, at least. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the next day is going to hold as much as we may try to control and predict and have our hands in it. We don't know. And the only way we can really give ourselves over to any experience at all is thinking, you know what, however it goes, I can adapt to it. Thank you so much for being here. It lights me up. It really does. That's it. It lights me up. And so thank you for keeping the light on in me. So I would love for you to introduce yourself to my audience. Well, I'm Stacy Aldridge. I'm a therapist in private practice in the Jackson, Mississippi area. And I love working with women to try to help them get inspired to live the life that they've always wanted. Congratulations. I see that you started the practice just like a few months ago, December 2019. 
Yes, I just finished up my postgraduate supervision and got my license to work independently. So it's really exciting. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, right. There's so many steps along the way. Did you ever feel like trapped in by those steps or did you just enjoy it all the entire time? I had to take a little break in between because I was laid off from a job and trying to find another job. So it took a little bit longer than two years. So that was a little bit stressful. But I think everything ends up working out the way that it's supposed to. Yeah, I I saw that you originally had thought about going for a PhD. And my ego did that. I was like, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go for the full thing, like having no concept of the fact of what a PhD really entails. Right. I'm like a nonfiction writer. I just want to talk about the feelings and the story, you know? And Mm -hmm. I ended up having to drop out after a year. And my twin sister, at the same time that I began the PhD, she started, you know, a social work degree. I'm like, I should have just done the two-year program. What was I thinking? Oh, I had no idea. When I first started out in school, I thought, okay, I have to get my PhD in psychology. I didn't have any concept of anybody else being able to do therapy or counseling. Mm Mm-hmm. A question that I just feel like asking because of all that's going on with the quarantine and everything. Has there ever been a moment in your life where you felt really isolated or pulled away from the world and you eventually re kind of emerged and reintroduced yourself into the world? Is there an experience that you can recall where you felt isolated? Absolutely. I moved away from my hometown a month after I turned 18. And I moved from Mississippi to Ohio and I was doing great for a while until I moved right across the river into Kentucky where I didn't know that many people. My job was working in a call center at that time, so we couldn't really talk to coworkers. And I spent a lot of time in my apartment with my cats and I did feel very isolated and I ended up moving back to my hometown because I just realized that I was going kind of into a dark place and I had to do something drastic to get Mm. myself out of it. Mm. So how long were you living in Kentucky? Um, I was only in Kentucky for um, a little under two years. Oh, no, that's a while. You didn't like bolt after four weeks. No, no. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, that's what I felt. I mean, those were my experiences and I would put two years into a place. And I think that's where I started to just like lose so much confidence in myself. You know, you hear people say, oh, give it six months. You know, you'll make friends in six months. And then, you know, two years pass by and you're like, what have I done wrong? Or like, this place will never be for me. Or let me go somewhere else and try it again and and start fresh, try to do it differently this time. Right. I think location does make a difference too, because a lot of the things that I appreciate and appreciated then, I felt like that particular area of Kentucky didn't have, you know, they didn't have a lot of local restaurants. They didn't have like a locally run music store. They didn't have like thrift stores or consignment stores. So everything felt very chain. And that's just not something that I'm usually interested in. So I think that that was part of it too. Yeah, location, location, location. Absolutely. Yeah, for a while I was like, no, I need to be someone that can achieve the same level of happiness in every location that I'm at. And Mm -hmm. otherwise it's all false, it's all fake. And then I was like, you know, it's okay to feel like I'm at my best in a certain place because that place speaks to me. I mean, at least I found a place. You know, I shouldn't like bully myself because maybe I'm better in New York than I am in Miami or something, you know? Well, so many people look for a place where they feel at home. It's amazing to have found that. What's wrong with me? You're the therapist. Like, why? You know what I'm saying? It's like, I find a place and then I judge myself for having a place. I think there's so many inspirational things that can be shaming, though. You know, like that whole bloom where you're planted thing. But Mm. some people feel better when they're near the ocean. Some people feel better when they're in rural areas with trees or the desert. Some people thrive in cities. It's just, we're all different. We are. Did you realize how we were all different or the extent to which we're different until you became a therapist? Or do you hear their stories and realize, okay, our stories are different, but we're really just the same? I think most people want the same things, basically. You know, we all want to be safe, secure, Most people want to find love and feel known. Mm. So I think those are the universal things, but there's so much diversity in interests and how people like to spend their time. Mm. So when it comes to wanting to be in love and then also wanting to be known, 
How often are there issues that come up about maybe just one's inability or fear of letting someone in and allowing themselves to be known and maybe you understanding or even them understanding that in order to be loved, you have to be known? Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of people say and think, oh, I want to get married. I want to have a long-term relationship. I want a partner, but they don't really want that. You know, because we don't want to open up in those ways. So it's more of the idea of having a partner than actually having to be vulnerable and open yourself up to being disappointed and the the day to day of dealing with somebody else. Yes, that's fascinating. Huh. It's almost this idea of not only like, am I doing something that maybe I think that society would want, Mm -hmm. but also the feeling that. I'll have someone in my home and we'll coexist together, but not really realizing that maybe the life skills that you need in order to make those things work, a lot of people are uncomfortable kind of achieving them. Like Mm -hmm. you said about being open to disappointment. That's a major one. And you're right. I think that maybe we go into it thinking, I found someone that's not going to disappoint me. Right. You know, we're looking for the Prince Charming or... We just want to believe that if we love somebody, they must be perfect. And then suddenly these things come up and we're like, wait a minute, you're not who I thought you were. There's one hand on that. I mean, there's obviously real levels of betrayal where people have another life or something. Right. right, There's small things that they're not suspicious elements of someone. They're just discovering more about someone. How should someone kind of manage that moment where someone's like, I didn't know this about you. I didn't know that you would react this way to something. I think reality always crashes in at some point in a relationship because we always put our best foot forward. You know, we want somebody to see the good things about us. So every relationship, whether it's romantic or friendship, I think we all have a moment of like, oh, I didn't expect you to react that way or I didn't expect you to say that or do that. And I think it's just remembering that it is somebody that we care about. Mm -hmm. So even if we realize something about them that we don't like, like, I have couples always complain about one person likes things to be really clean and one person is a little bit more messy. Just realizing a lot of the small things that come up are not bigger than what attracted you to that person and that foundation. Why do we nitpick like that though? Like, why is that always the argument? I don't know. It's never met a couple where they had the same desire for like keeping things neat and clean and orderly. There's always one person that's okay with like the shoes being in the middle of the floor and one person who wants to scream. Do you think that there's like a deeper issue at play or do you think it's really as simple as I wish he put the shoes somewhere else? I think sometimes it's just that simple, but Mm. sometimes, you know, people will talk about it going back to the way that they were brought up or, you know, that's just how they feel comfortable or, you know, I was raised to have a clean house. It's not always a deeper issue though. Sometimes, you know, we all have a way that we're comfortable and that's different for everybody. Right. I was talking to this guy and he was saying, there's this woman that he was dating that, you know, knew his cousin. So she came over for Thanksgiving. They ended up spending all holidays together, really blended well with his family on paper, just on the surface. Like this was a great person. They were great for each other. And she made him dinner one night and he came over and he walked in and he was just like, oh my God, this woman's like a hippie. Like she has folk music going on. Like this is not the world that I want to live in. Like my concept of a romantic night is not this. And Maybe someone hearing this story thinks it's like awful and like you're overlooking someone immediately, but I kind of really understood that. And I think maybe that's the rub with people about if someone's clean or not, because people are used to like their private space, their world. So if someone comes in and kind of disrupts it, you're afraid that your world is not going to feel like that sanctuary or it's not going to match and that's going to make you feel off kilter. Exactly. And we all have, I think, a way that we desire to live. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that like hippie folk music, Let's stay indoors thing is very different than somebody who wants to go out and have expensive meals that, you know, wear the designer clothes and see and be seen. So those lifestyles might not really mesh together well. And it made me think about, oh my God, this is why some people would be so cautious about inviting someone over or kind of like maybe wait about welcoming someone to their world, introducing them to their family. Is mm-hmm. think, oh my God, one thing. They'll see behind the curtain and not be into it. But I think that we have to like be brave enough to show people that stuff early. I mean, sure, when we feel comfortable, but to show what it really is because people have to see the reality and choose that. 
in you. Right. And the longer you stay in something, the more you invest. So it's better to get those things out early so that you can both say, hey, you know, you seem like a great person. I really like you, but I don't know that we have a a long future together. This might not be a forever thing. I think it's so free. That line, I just wish we all could say it. You know, like I remember when it hit me that I think I can really sense what someone should be for me in my life and really understanding the difference between like a romance and a long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. And I just wish that we all felt empowered enough to not mislead anyone. Because people ask me this, if I know that we don't have a long-term relationship, like it's never going to match up. But I really want to see them now still. I really want to treasure these moments with them. And I think one question is, do you have the self-control to be able to do that? Can you turn Mm -hmm. that side of yourself off? Or like you said, are you going to invest more time and then try to make an argument that you've invested all this time in history? You know? Right. Sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. I can't possibly get out now because I'm unhappy. I've wasted a year. I have to be unhappy for the rest of my life. Yeah, man. I just, that whole thing. But what do you think about people that come to you that are, you know, maybe mid thirties, okay? Mm -hmm. And they say, I just don't have the time to date like I used to. So like the time to get to know someone longer, not move in yet. You know, like basically I can't date someone for two years before we think about getting engaged. I need to make this go quicker. What do you think about that? Well, for women, especially, I think there is a biological aspect to that because you start to think I can only have children for X number of years. So I've got to hurry up and get on this. But if that's something important, then, you know, there's a lot of options. People are freezing their eggs now. Some people are choosing to be single parents and go through the whole experience alone. So I think most people probably, if they really sat down and thought about it, would much rather have kids on their own than be stuck in a relationship that they got into with somebody that they don't really like just so that they could have kids before it was too late. I know. I never thought in a million years that like I would choose to be a single parent, but I think that the consequences of rushing something with the wrong person and you're not always, but you know, you can be attached to them for the rest of your life. Oh yes. You don't want to choose someone that you know you hate to have kids with. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, probably most of us have at least one friend who has a child with somebody who's not a great person and has gotten to see dealing with child support or visitation or just children being disappointed by a parent that's not available to them. Yeah. I mean, I dated someone with two children and it really woke me up to the reality that one, I have to choose my long distance relationships better because when you're in a relation, long distance relationship with someone with two children, I mean, the reality is, is that you're going to have to move to where they are. And that's something that I really understood the level of having children with someone where you have those children is probably where you are going to spend the remainder of, you know, your children's until they become adults. And until then, there's no shifting around. Yes. Hopefully, you know, for the child's sake, I had that experience in a smaller way. My husband has two children And my stepson was living with my husband, who was then my boyfriend in a very small suburb of the city where I was living. And I really liked living in the city and being able to walk to restaurants and shops. And when it came time for us to start thinking about living together, we had to start looking in the suburb because we didn't want Ian to have to change high schools. But that also really limited what was available. And, you know, houses were more expensive here. And it was kind of frustrating. But the flip side of that was how awful would it be to make this kid move in his senior year of high school? Yeah. So you, when you were with your boyfriend, when you were dating your boyfriend at that time, not your husband, Mm -hmm. his son was older. He was in high school. Yes. When I met John, my husband, Ian was 15. So I got to kind of see him go from, you know, like this preteen kid trying to figure stuff out to like an adult man. It's really surreal to watch. Like all of a sudden you just look at this person who's like a child to you and you're like, oh, you're tall and you have a beard. And wow, when did this happen? I just can't imagine. And what's amazing is like your husband, it's his kid that he's watching transform quickly like that. Right. John says to him, you know, he looks at Ian and he still sees like a toddler. Right. I always wonder that, like, is there flashbacks to them, like, you know, shitting in their diaper? Like, mm-hmm. do you have moments <laughs> when you like, you look at your child and you just see that? Ugh. 
we'd have to have John on, I guess. Yes. Oh. A weird thing when you think about, you know, raising children. I think a lot of people don't think about, you know, what happens when they're 40 and you're, you know, 60 or 70. And what is that experience like? I mean, do you think that we shouldn't li- live in the future and kind of try to imagine those things? Or do you think it's good to explore that question? I think living in the future is always a bad idea. But I think sometimes people forget mm. that you know, your 15 or 16 year old child is going to be grown soon. You know, I work with adolescents in my practice as well. And sometimes parents are so afraid to let their kids make a mistake. And I have to say, hey, you know, you're 17 years old. At this point, you know, what you believe is pretty set. And this is the time when you're supposed to be making mistakes and figuring stuff out. So like one mistake is hopefully not going to ruin your life. Mm, Right. Or, I mean, I think that you understand this is, I think that we call it a mistake and that's an accident. I mean, one pivot in the quote unquote wrong direction can be the very thing that restructures our life in the best way possible. Oh, absolutely. Well, tell me about the story of you meeting a woman in a bookstore. Yes. (laughs) Well, I had just gone through the experience of, you know, living in Kentucky and feeling isolated and... Um, my mother had been having a lot of health problems and she'd been in and out of the hospital. So I made the decision. I thought that it was very altruistic. You know, I'm, I'm moving back home to be closer to my mother who's having all these problems. But in hindsight, I was jumping at the excuse to get out of Kentucky for whatever reason. But when I moved back to Mississippi, I found that there were not as many opportunities here. I had some college under my belt that I had not finished my degree. So I ended up taking a job in retail at a bookstore, which was kind of a step down from what I was doing in Kentucky. And I was making a lot less money. So that was a blow to my self-esteem. I was in a relationship, uh, but I was very bad. I had this habit of getting serious with people really quickly Mm -hmm. and then having that moment of, oh, you're not who I thought you were at all. And then kind of meeting somebody else And then being like, oh, yeah, I thought this person was the one, but clearly this new person is the one. Oh, so you would jump ship pretty quickly. Usually I would be in a relationship for at least a year. Okay. But I don't think I knew it at the time. But as soon as stuff got hard and got too real, I was kind of looking for the next person. Wow. Because I had this idea, I think, that everything would just run really smoothly once I found the right person. So if there were problems and issues, it must mean that the person I was with was not the right one. Now, did you feel like you didn't want this gap of being single because it reminded you of maybe being alone in Kentucky? Like, did you have an avoidance toward being alone and without a relationship because of maybe of how you remember feeling when you were isolated? Probably. I had never really been alone. Like even if I was physically alone, like in the time I was in Kentucky, for part of that time, I was in a relationship living with somebody. And then for part of that time, I was in a long distance relationship. So even if I was like physically alone, I was never really alone, alone. When I finally did live alone for an extended period of time, I loved it. And I think it was a great experience that everybody should try, even if it sounds scary. Yeah, it, it can take years. I've lived alone since like 2006. Mm-hmm. And I say that it's only like within the last years that I've been able to actually do it, be good at it, to not look for things to escape myself, not to look for long distance relationships. So when I was alone, I didn't feel alone. You know what I'm saying? Yes. To really just cut all those ties. So I really enjoyed my own company. Yeah. And having your own space and being able to do whatever you want. I probably underestimate. At least I don't know. You know, I haven't had roommates, so I forget that. I forget, you know, like it it is a luxury that everything within your space is yours, right? Like you are in charge of the vibe and then you don't have to negotiate that with anyone. Or like what I was saying before about couples having fights, you know, if if you leave your shoes in the middle of the floor, it's not upsetting anybody. Yeah, you're right. Maybe it would really bother me. I remember seeing my my ex and he just always had a laundry basket and clothes. I felt like I was always cleaning and organizing there. Mm-hmm. And you know, the beginning, you know, you're like, ah, oh, it's the woman coming in with her magical touch. And you're like, why does it ever stay this way? So I get it now. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been in relationships, you jump ship, you know, you start seeing someone else, you're working at this retail store, it's kind of a blow to your ego. And... and- I um, 
I remember it really vividly. It's funny. It almost feels like watching a film, almost like an out-of-body experience. Like I was standing at the front of the bookstore where the registers were, and I see Jamie walking down the hallway toward me. And I just felt like I was struck by lightning. Mm. Nothing like that, I don't think, had ever happened to me before. I definitely believed in love at first sight because I'm kind of a romantic at heart. But I just knew. I was like, I have to know this person. Like, right. This person is going to change my life. Yes. Okay, I feel you on that. Which is interesting because, yes, that's love at first sight maybe, but it's also like a messenger at first sight. It's like a soul mm-hmm. at first sight. Like, I totally get you. It's almost like you're not necessarily saying that is the person I'm going to marry. It's like, the first thing is like, I just know I need to know this person. Exactly. Wow. Like, it's very important. They're going to play an important part in my life. First off, have you seen the series You? Yes. (laughs) I'm picturing (laughs) that. (laughs) This is what is coming to my mind. Okay. The lightning strikes, and how do you make the move? Uh, well, working together, because she worked in the bookstore, she was uh, one of the managers, but not my boss. So I didn't report to her. So working in the same place made it easier to get to know each other. But she is and was somebody that people are drawn to. Like She's just one of those people that people are always drawn to. So it wasn't just me. So she was always had people surrounding her and She's very funny and outgoing. I think that that also kind of made it more of a challenge for me because I was like, okay, all of these people want her attention and affection. And if I can get it, then boy, that must mean that I'm something because she'll be choosing me mm. out of all of these people. And you're talking about men and women were all drawn to her. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh. <laughs> and she is a lesbian. She doesn't date men, but... Yeah, even men were always like, man, if, if you dated guys, I would take you out. Oh, hi. Yeah, you never always, go back. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was just also very confident. And I think people are really drawn to confidence. Mm. Yeah, it's just funny looking back on it because, yeah, she just always had people that wanted to be talking to her, spending time with her. And she didn't take advantage of that. If it was a malicious thing, but oh yeah, she would always have any one of us like go to get her lunch from someplace and do things for her. She took advantage of it, not necessarily in a bad way, but yes, she loved the attention and having people do things for her. And Mm -hmm. yeah, who wouldn't love having people that just wanted to make sure you were happy? She was sort of like the queen of books a million, I think. (laughs) Books a million? Oh my God. Yes. Yes, who wouldn't? But I think the step to kind of saying, yes, you can go get me my lunch. I don't know. I feel like that's, it's hard. I mean, that's like asking for help. I mean, she must've been comfortable just being like, oh yeah, totally. You can do this for me. I mean, I wish I had the confidence to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny because we never questioned it. You know, it was almost like you got chosen that day to do something for her. How great is that? You're kidding me. Oh my God. I'm thinking about the Devil Wears Prada. Yes. Yeah. But she was nice. Nice. That's the difference. I think, you know, she made everybody feel good about themselves. You know, she was genuinely interested in hearing about you. And so even though like, I'm sure she probably sounds awful, but she was also somebody that made people feel good about themselves too. Oh yeah. I mean, she's my muse. Yeah. I mean, I, know, I now in quarantine, I have a vision for myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds like you were in this relationship before, okay? So you meet yeah. her. And so was there a conversation that you guys were having about potentially being in a relationship together? Well, she was very flirtatious. And there's two or three women, you know, that she was talking to. She definitely had a thing for married women for some reason. And I realized in hindsight, that she just wanted people who were not available. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I just thought, well, everybody wants her. So, <laughs> Oh my God, interesting. Yeah, interesting. so, you know, we would text and flirt and spend time together, but 
not like in a romantic way, like outside of work, but it wasn't romantic or sexual necessarily, just lots of flirtation. But like we had the experience one night of like hanging out and talking until the sun came up. Mm. So it felt like almost like, you know, this is what you're looking for, you know, in somebody, somebody where the conversation never ends and you can talk about anything. And it just felt like, this is what I've been waiting for. Like, I absolutely have to spend the rest of my life with this person. Yeah. But as soon as I decided, you know, because she would be like, well, you know, can't go anywhere because you're in a relationship. You know, this could never get more serious because you have somebody else. So I was like, well, let's just get rid of the barriers between. Let's kill them off. Yeah. (laughs) If this is the issue, you know, we can't be together because I'm with somebody else, then I'll just be single. Right. And as soon as I was available, the situation totally changed. She really backed off a lot and stopped spending as much time with me and stopped texting me back as quickly. So that was tough. So you felt a bit blindsided. I really did. Well, I mean, when somebody tells you like, oh, you know, we could have a future, but we can't because you're with somebody else. Essentially, this is all it will take. Right. It's like implied. Yeah. But, you know, she never really came out and said, hey, if if you are single, we would be in a relationship. It's just that it was implied. So, I mean, that's what flirtation is all about. You're not crossing the line. It's just all implied. Right. Right. Now, did you feel like at the time, okay, let me get back with who I was with or no? No, I just, it's funny because I was not somebody that really liked to do things that I knew that I wouldn't be good at. Mm -hmm. I didn't really like challenges. I liked doing things that made me seem smart or accomplished or something. But like, I wouldn't start something if I didn't know that I was going to be really good at it. So it was really weird because I just took that as, okay, I just need to try harder. To get her? To get her. Yeah. I just need to prove myself more. Right. Okay. And so it was almost it felt like a quest in a way, mm. you know, for thinking about she's the queen and, you know, now I'm on a quest for her. You charged up. Yes. You were not grieving anything. I was determined. And, wow. you know, I have since grieved the way that I treated my partner at the time and apologized to him. And, you know, we've had conversations because this was 12, 13 years ago. So, you know, I've said it at some point, you know, I know that I treated you horribly and I was so Mm -hmm. selfish and I can't imagine what it must have been like for you. But at the time, like I was focused on Jamie, like she was the only thing I thought about Mm. every waking moment. (laughs) Did he acknowledge the fact that he had been hurt? Yes. Wow. And now did you circle back all these years later because you understand through your therapy that, you know, what they're grieving is the fact maybe they've never grieved or they've never had acknowledgement. They've never had an answer. They've never you know, had closure. You know, I think closures are really personal things. I hear that all the time. You're like, he just didn't give me closure. I need closure. I say closure is really someone looking for an opening. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking well, to close anything. You know, we're looking for something from someone that they didn't give us before and they're definitely not going to give us now. Ugh, they're not entitled is the wrong word. But you know, when you're in a relationship, there's kind of this umbrella understanding and expectation to give us clarity. There's an expectation. Now you're an ex. I mean, usually the expectation is that they're not going to give you anything. So people are going to run with that more than they're going to like, you know, pull out the red carpet and lay it all out there. Unfortunately. Right. I think, you know, we're looking for an apology. We definitely want people to be like, you know, I think hurting you was a big mistake. I should never right. let you go, you know, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, totally. Okay, so you circled back, though, after how many years do you think? Um, well, actually, in the moment was when I think I really changed. Because, like I said, I was thinking about her every waking moment. And I knew then, I was like, this is not healthy. Mm. (laughs) Like, this is a problem. And I don't know that I was grieving it at that time as much as I was like, I have to figure out whatever it is inside me that put me into this situation that's causing me so much pain and figure out how to fix that because I don't want to be in pain forever. 
Now that is wise. You knew that there was some responsibility that your choices had put you in this place. Yes. Well, I mean, it was desperation. Yes. It was really interesting because I was working in a bookstore and it was a very large bookstore, a chain bookstore. So books a million. Um, books a million. Yeah. Right. So yeah. we would have things come down from the corporate office to set all of the end caps with certain books and stuff. And I was cleaning up the end caps and right in the middle of like a young adult fantasy end cap, somebody had left the book codependent no more. Yes. By uh, Melody your- Beattie. Yes. And I said, this is a sign. <laughs> and I bought the book. In the fantasy category. Is that what you said? Yes. <laughs> like it was all of these books with dragons on the cover right. and then codependent no more right there. And I was like, this is a sign from the universe that I need to read this book. You credit the book? It was the beginning it was of the, beginning. the journey. Yeah. I remember for me, the beginning of my journey was Pia Melody, mm-hmm. overcoming love addiction. <laughs> yes. Or facing love addiction. Mm-hmm. Yes. I understand. But it was probably about four or five years later, when I finally had gone back to college and finished my degree, that I was sort of looking back and going, what was it that made me decide to finally go back to school? You know, what was it? Because when I had quit school the first time, I had gotten two C's. And to me, that was like death. I could have failed the class if it was C's. But to me, like anything less than an A was a failure, really. So when I started trying to figure out why then, I kind of realized that the relationship or non-relationship with Jamie and trying to, to be with her, you know, no matter what, had made me overcome my fear of failure. Mm. And I hadn't realized it at the time, but that was just the first thing that I wanted so badly that I was willing to put everything on the line and fail. And once I survived that, because I did not get to be with her, mm-hmm. like spoiler alert, that it did not go well, <laughs> but I had survived it. I blew up my world. I chased after this person who was not truly emotionally available and I hadn't gotten what I wanted and I had worked so hard and I'd put everything into it and it didn't kill me. So once I had gone through that, I was like, okay, I can do anything. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes the chase, not getting it, can make someone feel, I mean, at least on The Bachelor, they always use this word, I'm humiliated. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Always humiliated. Mm -hmm. Just to know that not getting or not having something returned to you, not having it reciprocated, it not panning out, feeling humiliated was not enough to tank your confidence. Right. Because I wasn't confident before. (laughs) It's just funny. It was like a switch flipped. And I think part of it was that, you know, I started reading self-help books like Codependent No More and trying to figure out why do I feel the way that I feel? Why do I do the things that I do? Because I sort of had this mentality through all of my 20s that finding the relationship was the priority. As soon as I found that person that I was meant to spend the rest of my life with, then I could focus on all the other stuff that didn't matter quite as much to me, like a career and that sort of thing. And I think through the self-exploration, after having my heart exploded into a million pieces, I realized that just because love is the most important thing to me, it doesn't mean that that has to be the only focus of my life. Mm. Yeah. Mark Manson says something like, you have to have something in your life that's more important than love. Mm -hmm. Something like that. And I was just like, what is he talking about? I didn't get it. But also wouldn't want to be someone that said a relationship is the end all be all. But yet that was always what was going to give me access to a world that always Mm -hmm. was the focus of my days. And I realized that Having something else that was more important than a romantic relationship, finding it has changed my life. And to realize that, you know, there's still love in your life. You know, you can be a loving person. Yeah, like it's not about getting rid of that feeling or having that presence or that, you know, attention, giving your attention in a loving way. 
Yeah, just not having it your single focus. I think it makes you such a more honest person too. Like your intentions are more honest. Yes. And it's also like we take all of this energy and we throw it into dating and finding somebody and putting that energy in ourselves can really cause amazing things. Mm-hmm. You know, I was spending so much energy on everybody else because I thought that that was what I wanted and needed, but it really took focusing on myself. Before I met my husband, I decided that I needed to become the person that somebody that I would want to be with would want to be with. <laughs> yes, I mean, that they would say yes to. I think we always forget, like, we're out there with this idea of the one, and like, what in the world makes you think that they would say you're the one? Exactly. That has to be, that is exciting for your days. I mean, at least you're doing something with your days instead of just out there looking and not matching with someone. At least this is something to kind of direct your life and feed you over time. Yes. Yeah, that's so great. So what were you doing in order to become that person? Uh, Well, I had finished up my degree and I started working in nonprofit mental health advocacy, which was something that I really wanted to do. So I had my dream job right out of undergrad, which was amazing. But I was also 30. So (laughs) a little bit late in that, you know, I adopted a dog who really changed my life too. I call her my soulmate, actually. And I bought a house and I was working out, eating healthier. And this is all in a span of like, four years. Yeah, probably over about four years, you know, traveling. That was one thing that I always was very, I got to have somebody else to do this with me. You know, I felt very afraid of traveling alone as a woman. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm just putting all of this on hold. And what if this person never comes? Like, what if this partner doesn't show up? Am I just going to not go the places that I want to go and see the things that I want to see? So I was functioning really well alone. But I still did want that, you know, partner romantic relationship, but it wasn't the focus of my life and finding that wasn't the focus of my life. And I know they always say when you stop looking is when you find somebody and I wasn't not looking. It's just that my energy was going to all of the other stuff I had going on. And then when did John walk into the picture? I was going to grad school and really getting into fitness and working out and, you know, trying to better myself in those ways. And I had a crush on a friend and that didn't go very well. He was an old friend and I told him I had feelings for him and it sort of ruined the friendship. But I thought, you know, Uh, maybe this is a sign that I need to open myself up to some new people. So I actually got on (laughs) OkCupid, online dating. Online dating for the win. My God. John sent me a message and he probably needed like a relationship coach or somebody because he, his initial message, he gave me way too much information way too quickly. And I wasn't interested in him at all. Really? I was just like, no, you seem like a nice guy, but we can be friends. You don't seem like somebody I'm interested in dating. Maybe don't open with all this stuff. Like I was trying to give him some tips for maybe when he messaged a woman that might actually be interested in him. Like, <laughs> And we had a little bit of a conversation, but I think what was funny was because I wasn't interested in him. I was very honest yes, um, and open because I didn't really care if he liked me. And then we had some like funny random stuff in common. And, uh, but then the conversation kind of died off like it does, you know, he matches back and forth and then I didn't message him back after one of the messages and the conversation just sort of died off and I had completely forgotten about it. And it was the fall, I guess that was in the springtime. And so it went through the summer and then the fall, he sent me a message just out of nowhere asking how the fall semester of grad school was going for me. And for some reason, he was a lot more attractive to me then. <laughs> oh my God. He had a summer tan. No, uh, I don't know. It wrote just... you on OkCupid again or he had your number? No, he wrote me on OkCupid again. Oh he didn't God. have any of my contact information. I only just got on a dating app, so I've always been against them. So I'm trying to understand how this all works. And I was asking recently, like, do people ever circle back? You know, like, do they ever resurrect a dead conversation? And so, wow, I guess John did. Yes. Well, I didn't realize, you know, he had gone through 
a really nasty divorce and he and his wife had been married for like 18 years, very unhappily for most of it. And his therapist had actually told him to, he had to try to online dating and he had told her, well, that's fine because the person that I want does not exist, especially not in Mississippi because we don't have you know, a huge pool of people here. A lot of people move away as soon as they can. So God, yeah, you know, it's a small state. And I was like the ideal person that he described. <laughs> and then apparently I popped up. So I guess it was worth it to him to come back and message this person that like checked all the boxes. Did you ever peer if like his therapist had encouraged him to circle back? I don't know. I don't know if I ever asked him that. Oh my God. I wonder how much he talked about you. I don't know. But we've had conversations since then. And I said, you know, the amazing thing about it is that if we both hadn't done all of the work that we needed to do over the years to work on ourselves and figure out, you know, the things that we needed to overcome and weren't really invested in ourselves, I don't think that we would have been interested in one another. It really took both of us, you know, being willing to face like he's a recovering alcoholic. So like it took him, you know, getting sober, being willing to go through all of that. Even if we had met, I don't think that both of us would have been interested in each other. Right. That to me is what it means about timing. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, initially when he had messaged me, he said he had 10 months sober. Mm -hmm. And my response to that was, I'm not interested in dating someone that doesn't have at least a year. Like, sorry, not interested. Well, he waited two months, over two months. Yes. <laughs> Got that chip. Tell me the, really quickly some of the benefits you feel for you about dating someone that um, is in recovery. I just want to say really fast, I was talking to this one guy that I too wasn't that interested in, and then the banter was so good and I found out that he has 10 years sober. So my sister has oh, wow. a twin sister. So I was asking about dating and my sister feels like it's very difficult for her. She's just like, the energy gets sucked out of a room when someone finds out that she's sober and how oh. could she date if she wasn't? So I was asking him and he said, I'll tell you this. I thought it was so on point, to be honest. He goes, the moment I tell someone I'm sober, he doesn't want to date someone that's sober. Mm-hmm. All the picture that they have of what a romantic relationship, being in love over a bottle of wine, going to a vineyard, staring at each other's eyes, you know, after a long conversation, drinking, all of that goes out the window. That will never happen between us. And so they have to ask themselves, can they do that on their own? And yeah, I think there's so much truth to that. So I'm curious for you, because of course, you, when you first hear it, you know, I remember when my sister went into recovery, I was horrible. When my first thoughts was, are you kidding me? Can I not have champagne at my wedding now? I mean, that was like <laughs> selfish thinking, right? So right. Start with like all the negatives of what you now can't have in your life. What have you gained from being with someone that's in recovery? He's very self-aware mm-hmm. in a way that a lot of people aren't because I think, you know, when we really get involved in like reading personal growth books and trying to grow as people, you know, there's some sort of a catalyst for that. And for him, it was sobriety and trying to work through emotional issues. So he's more a lot more self aware than a lot of people. It's funny, because I think alcoholics and addicts can be very self centered. And it always kind of makes him realize that he's not the most important person. Mm -hmm. So it's just a change in mindset when somebody's actually working recovery. I'm actually kind of into it. If I didn't have maybe the fear, the hesitation of like, could they fall off the wagon? And I Mm -hmm. say that just because I've worried, you know, about my sister and I know it's out of my control, you know? Right. And then I think, God, that'd be like three people in my family now that's sober. My dad, my sister, my boyfriend or husband, you know, what would that be like? But at the same time, I really relate and celebrate what you're saying, which is I would end up being most likely with someone that's very self-aware, that did a rigorous, you know, as they say, inventory of themselves. Mm -hmm. I like that. I need that, you know? Oh, yeah. It's wonderful. And I guess, you know, socially, it does make things difficult because a lot of activities for adults revolve around alcohol or bars and that type of thing. But now he's been sober for long enough that it doesn't bother him to be around people who are drinking. Like we didn't have alcohol at our wedding, but 
you know, it doesn't really stop us from doing the things that we want to do. But people do find it to be very odd. You know, it's kind of outside of the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, I saw it with my parents. You know, my parents always at the party house and shifted or even their friends. I mean, we're talking about people in their 60s or something, you know. Oh, wow. They stopped like inviting them over to parties because they thought that they would be uncomfortable or they would judge. A lot of the times it has to do with a lot of other people's reactions and not necessarily the person that's sober. It's discomfort, you know. Definitely. Yeah, but for me, you know, because I had been getting into health and fitness more, I had really stopped drinking very much because I noticed, you know, that when I was working out the next day, I was like doing a couch to 5k program. So I was like, boy, you know, I can't run as well after I've had a couple of glasses of wine the night before. So I had already eased off of alcohol. So it was pretty easy for me, kind of weird to like have gone for several years and not have had a cocktail, but I just don't really think about it anymore. Mm, perfect match, really. Yes. It shows that you don't have to go through the same experience in order to be a match. Definitely not. But I find that it is definitely helpful that I am interested and invested in his recovery because, you know, he still goes to meetings. He's got seven years now. So, you know, when he comes home from a meeting, I'll say, well, what did you guys talk about? Oh, you know, what did you say about that? And sometimes we have some good conversations about it, but, you know, it's something that he shares with me that I can share with him too. Yeah, it's not like he's doing it in isolation or something. I mean, I really think people's ability to stay sober has a lot to do with the people around them that are, you know, willing to look it in the face, accept it, support it, talk about it, and they don't make it a problem of their own. Absolutely. And it was hard because, you know, when we met, he said, you know, my sobriety is number one, yeah. and then my kids are number two. So I had to think, okay, am I okay with being number three? But then if he's not sober, he doesn't have anything for any of us. So, Wow, that's like a whole different discussion. Let me just ask you, do you feel like you're third? I understand logically and totally, but is it actually something where you're like, yeah, I definitely feel like number three? No. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't necessarily mean that if you really feel the hierarchy, you know? Absolutely not. Well, especially not with having an adult child. Ian is out on his own now, so we both kind of worry and care about him in a parent kind of way, but it's not the same as if somebody had young children. So I coined the word break upward. Mm -hmm. I never say the word right, but upward direction, not upward. Um, I'm curious what it means to you. I think that a lot of people might see a break up as a rock bottom of sorts. And I think, you know, break upward would be like, how do we come through this in a way that elevates us, that makes us better people. You know, we have to find the meaning and stuff. If you can't find the meaning in heartbreak, then it all seems like it's for nothing. You know, there's got to be a lesson. Right. I say that if you leave a relationship without finding the meaning, you've completely wasted the opportunity. Absolutely. You know, what it reminds me of too is um, the famous book on grief, Death and Dying. You know, the guy that wrote it with her, which is named David Kessler. He came out with a book recently after his son died from an overdose and with like the next stage that was never written about in that book. And the next stage is finding meaning after acceptance. Yes. Yes. So I agree. That's the stage that elevates you ultimately. And that lets you integrate the heartbreak into your life without shunning it or shying away from it or feeling ashamed that it felt or meant anything to you. Well, I think it kind of goes back to, you know, that sunk cost fallacy we talked about earlier where people are like, oh, you know, I put in this time and what have I gotten out of it? But if we've learned something and we've grown, then Mm. that's what we've gotten out of it. It wasn't for nothing. There is that meaning there. Yes. Great point. Tell my audience where they can find you. You can find me at my website. It's stacyaldridgelcsw.com. And I'm Stacy with an E. Anytime you meet a Stacy, that's the first thing we ask. How do you spell your name? Also, Stacy Aldridge LCSW on Instagram. And I won't give you my Twitter because I get on Twitter once a year. So uh, if I can do anything with the quarantine, I think it's maybe revive my Instagram presence. Yes, it's a great opportunity to put some time and energy into that. Listen, thank you for being as candid with me and taking me on this, this ride. I felt like it was a film for a second, you know, that library <laughs> scene. I was really, not library, the bookstore, I was really in it. Yes. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Of course.
course. It felt like chatting with a friend. So thank yes, you. It did. And congrats on your marriage. Thank you. And, uh, a good okay Cupid story. Yes, it does work out. <laughs> Giving me some confidence. If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at BreakUpward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D, Com. And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupward.com slash shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.